the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the program. If this is a crummy program today, don't blame me. I don't function well in freezing cold weather. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And this is the Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions. All you have to do is call us anything and everything that's on your heart. We'll do the best that we possibly can. Our phone number is 210-340-9585. That's 340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. Numerically, that's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com. Or you can send them in using our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. If you're driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the Call Now banner at the top of the screen, and everything else will be hands-free, and you'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Our main number, one more time, is 340-9585. Now, tonight... I'm going to be doing a Bible study in Isaiah chapter 59. I wish I could have done 58 and 59 together, but it was just too much material. Um, but but this is another really important study. I'm I'm really learning how rich these final sections of Isaiah really, really are. And the application is off the charts important for us. So that's what we're going to be doing tonight. You are more than welcome to come if you want to brave the cold. I imagine we'll have plenty of room tonight on this frigid night. Uh, but we will be live streaming uh, at 7 o'clock on, at calvarysa.com. So you can watch it that way as well. Tomorrow, Paula will be live in studio with me on the date day edition of the show. Uh, you, we always look forward to being together with you. So that will be tomorrow. So now that I've got all of that out of the way, let me get to the questions. Um, Deborah asked the first question today. She said, uh, Pastor Ron, is abortion the litmus test for how a Christian, Christian should vote? Um, Deborah, I, I don't know how to answer that question. I, I don't think that we should ever have um, one issue. I, I don't think it's wise. I don't think it's godly even to be a one issue voter. Uh, certainly, Deborah, I don't believe, um, let me rephrase, I don't understand how a Christian um, can can vote for uh, a, a pro-abortion candidate. I, I've never understood it. I, I've had people say, well, it's just not as important an issue to me. 65 million babies have been killed since 1973. 65 million and counting. Uh, I think that is a stench in the nostrils of God. Now, I know there's a lot of other things, uh, but uh, I don't know that uh, abortion should be the one thing um, that a Christian would use to decide how to vote. Uh, Let me give you an example. Uh, uh, 
uh, an election before uh, our current president was elected, uh, there was a Mormon candidate who who was uh, the conservative candidate, or at least he claimed to be the conservative candidate, and I couldn't vote for him. I, I could not. I didn't vote for the Democrat, believe me, but I couldn't vote for him because there is a man who blasphemes the name of my God every time he uses it, and because he's a Mormon, he uses it often. I simply couldn't vote for him, and to me, that was a priority issue. Any more than I could vote for somebody if they got on stage and took God's name in vain repeatedly. I, I couldn't vote for them. Uh, there are other people I know, sincere Christians, who are so concerned about the plight of the immigrants in our country, legal or illegal, that he simply will not, cannot vote for somebody who isn't um, forgiving of the illegal immigration status. So we all have our different burdens. Uh, I just don't think it's a godly example, Deborah, to have one thing that determines how we vote. Having said that, I I already said that um, that would be one thing. If there were two candidates in this next election and both were uh, pro-abortion, I I couldn't vote for either. So uh, it's it's an important test, uh, but is it the single option or the single barrier uh, to voting? I, I don't know the answer to that. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. Here is uh, somebody who wrote in, just identifies herself as a mom. My 16-year-old has asked me to let her date. What should my response be as a Christian? Uh, I don't know your 16-year-old mom. You do. And so here's what you got to do. You got to, this is something you got to be, deal with in prayer. But I, I will say this. I don't think it is productive, nor do I think it is particularly spiritual. When Christian parents say, I'm not going to let my daughter, I'm not going to let my son date until they're um, uh, 18 or uh, in college, or uh, I know dads who won't let their daughters date, not until they're 40. Um um, I, I think dating is a part of our culture. I think the dates need to be supervised. I think the dates need to be safe. Uh, I think we need to be really, really careful. The Bible says in Song of Songs, do not awaken desire before the right time. And I, I think we've got to keep all of that in mind. I think it also is important, uh, the kind of relationship that you have with your 16-year-old. Is your 16-year-old uh, somebody who is trustworthy. Uh, do they tell you the truth, even when they know there's going to be difficulty? Have they shown responsibility? I'm all for saying yes to my kids as long as I can, as as often as I can. And I say that to our parents here at Calvary Chapel uh, because there's just too many times we have to say no. I think it is unreasonable to try to pretend our kids aren't subject to these kind of things, I think our job as parents is to respond, to prepare them to be in this world and to be a light for Jesus Christ. So, uh, again, not knowing your 16-year-old, this is between you, I would imagine, if her father is in the picture, um, um, then this is something you've got to be on the same page about. And it's got to be something you've got to be able to talk with her reasonably about. Don't just say no. Talk to her. If you can't trust her, let her know why you can't trust her. And let her know that these are the kinds of things where truth is really valued. And if she earns your trust, then at a later date you can be able to talk about these things. But I think it's really important, a mom, I think it's really important to really consider her spiritual maturity level Consider her integrity, uh, the relationship that you have with her, and if um, and certainly meeting the boy involved, um, then I think uh, it might be okay. But again, not knowing your daughter, my answer has to be general. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. Let's go to Jeff on line one from San Antonio. Jeff, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hi, Pastor Ron. Hi, Jeff. How are you today? I'm doing great. Um, uh, how's my favorite pastor and musician? <laughs> he, 
he's really cold. Other than that, he's doing great. Yeah, I know you're you're the maestro of the one string guitar. I love That's that. right. <laughs> yes, sir. I, I imagine tomorrow on on date day that you and Paula will be talking about your weekend. Uh, I I would I would assume so. I would assume so, especially I'd like for Paul to talk a little bit about the message. But, you know, Jeff, one of the things I try to do on Thursday is not clutter her brain up with what I think she ought to talk about. The Lord leads pretty well in this area, so uh, I'll do what she wants to do. But but I'm hoping that she'll talk a little bit about uh, about at least her message uh, to the women who were at the at the conference. I, I wondered how, I wanted to ask you, you can probably address this tomorrow because I have a question for you, just the, uh, the, the feeling that you have when you, the opportunity to ordain other, other men oh. into ministry and, and how that was like for you in those years of study and anticipation and now you're, you're ordaining other men. That must be just a, an amazing uh, responsibility, but just... To, Beautiful feeling. Yeah, you know, uh, Jeff. I, when I prayed for the men at the um, at the conference, um, I started out by saying, "Lord, you tell us not to lay hands on any man suddenly." Um, these men have been tested and they've been proven, and and then we're able to 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 uh, pray the ordination for them. Um, you know, in this particular case, Jeff, and I, I'll, I'll, I'll be happy to answer your question uh, that you have in just a moment. But this is an important topic for me. Uh, two of the three men that were ordained came out of my church. And and the, the, the overwhelming feeling of pride. Uh, we've, we've planted, we're, we're planting our 31st church uh, out of, out of our, this church in, in 24 and a half years. Uh, this year, our, our, our Spanish pastor is going to be going to Mexico. That'll be our 31st church plant. And, um, um, you know, when I look around at the pastor's conference and I'm counting a bunch of men who came out of our church, I got to tell you, in a godly way, I'm really, really proud. I'm, I'm in awe of the Lord because of his goodness to us. But uh, it is it is an amazing thing. Um, it's a little different with people I don't know that well because I oversee a large part of uh, actually South Texas. Um, um, you know, when I don't know somebody... You know, I'm, I'm, we've, we've talked to them, we've had them fill out paperwork and gotten to know them as best we can from a distance. Um, but, you know, I, I let them know that this is really serious. You're, you're representing uh, not only the Lord, you're representing Calvary Chapel, you're representing me. And we want to make sure that the people are going to be loved, they're going to be fed the word. And uh, it, it really was a, a great experience. Really, really a good thing. Thank you for asking. We lose you, Jeff. Thirty-one. Oh, okay. Cool. Thirty-one. What is your question? What's your question? Well, um, I want to go back to Isaiah fifty-eight. Your study again. Uh huh. And and I and Isaiah fifty-eight eight. You know that your light will break forth like dawn, and your healing will quickly appear. And you had mentioned at the end of the study that that you didn't have time to elaborate on it, but that you had. You had a, a two weeks of darkness in your life that God broke, that took, God led you out of that. Now, I don't know mm-hmm. if this is the time that you can elaborate on that a little bit, share about that. Yeah, I can. I, I can, Jeff. Thank you very, very much. Thank you, Jeff. Thank, thank you, Jeff. Uh, yeah, I, I, uh, last week's message. Um, you know, I think I talked for an hour and, you know, I try to keep it at 45 minutes and and sometimes I just can't. So uh, I have to on Sundays, but on Wednesdays we had a little bit more time. Uh, and, and so I told the church, I said, um, um, the thens of God is what I was talking about. And I'm going to briefly touch on that today. Um, and, and I talked about knowing what it was like to feel that light of God return to your life. And for me, Jeff, and, and I'll tell you the, the bridge story, um, I did something as a, as, a, as a new Christian, a young Christian. Uh, I did something I knew was willfully disobedient. God had spoken to my heart so clearly about never working for anybody but him again. Um, I knew it. Paula knew it. Um, she was in agreement with me. 
uh, and things were really, really hard. Now, when you're a brand new believer and you're going through really difficult tests, um, you know, it's hard to combat the enemy. It's hard to combat your flesh. And um, um, we were in financial trouble um, caused by me, caused by my sin. And things were getting really, really, really scary. And a brother-in-law of mine who was quite wealthy um, was one of the men that God used to bring me to saving faith. Um, he was talking to me one day and he said, you know, Ron, you're struggling financially, but you got to go to work. And I said to him, I can't go to work. And he told me that if I wouldn't work, I was worse than an infidel if I wouldn't support my family. Um, misusing in a very harsh and judgmental way Paul's words to Timothy. And um, I remember he and another guy picked me up in a car and just sort of got me alone and pounded on me for a couple of hours. And I finally relented. I made a promise. Okay, I'll get a job. Getting a job was never a problem for me. I'll get a job. So um, I, I kept my promise to them. And in the process of keeping my promise to them, I broke my promise to God. Now, as a young believer, I was immature, but at the same time, that's no excuse. I knew what God had said. So that afternoon, I got some business done, and then I came home, and I sat down in my chair. And the worst depression uh, that, that I've ever experienced in my life, it, I can't, depression's probably the wrong term. It was just a blackness, and it just came over me. And Jeff, for two weeks, I didn't get out of that chair. I mean, I went to bed at night, and if I had to go to use the restroom. But uh, for two weeks, I was paralyzed by that blackness. And, and I really did feel like, like the, the, the entirety of hell was coming against me. And um, Paula was so worried about me, she called uh, a couple people over, including that man, and they were going to talk to me. I wouldn't even let them in the house. I was just, I couldn't hear from the Lord. I couldn't, I, I'd open my Bible and I, I couldn't see anything. Um, uh, in, in prayer, it was like there was, there was no one there. And, and I really believed that I grieved the heart of God so badly that he was done with me. When in reality, he was teaching me a lesson. And two weeks goes by, it was a, a Saturday, and the blackness started to leave a little bit, and, and I, I just felt like I needed to go to church the next day. And I went to church, it was something silly, it wasn't even something important, but they had a, a missionary witness, and, and uh, we had no money, no money at all. And um, this, went, this missionary was talking about and and I felt like the Lord said, give her the money you've got. We had like 50 bucks. And for us, that was a fortune at the time. And uh, I remember saying, Paula, the Lord spoke to my heart. And I was so thrilled that I could say that, that my joy came running back. We gave the $50, and that darkness lifted. And the one thing, Jeff, the one thing that I learned above anything else is that I never, ever wanted to go back in that darkness. God allowed me a, a, a two-week period of time or it took me back into that place where I was completely separated from him, where there was no fellowship. Now, of course, he'll never leave me or forsake me. I know that. But he let me live for two weeks what it would be like to live my life apart from him. And when that darkness lifted, the one thing I was committed to doing was never, ever, being disobedient again. Now, I'm sure I haven't been perfect, but the idea is uh, I want to repent. I want to keep short accounts with the Lord. And I always want to be in that place where I can be. And maybe, Jeff, that experience is one of the reasons that I say all the, t all the time, um, just be with Jesus. I know what it's like not to be with him. And so I, uh, I, I never want to go into that dark place again. So I hope that answers your question, Jeff. I think I've in, I included that in, in, in uh, one of my testimony um, teachings that was done. Good question. Thank you, Jeff. 340-9585. Here's a question from Jean. I know it's spelled. It's a woman. 
Um, how can my husband, well, here's how I know it's a woman. How can my husband and I be sure to be godly parents? Um, Jean, uh, I, I get asked the question more often, uh, what are the things that we need to do? And um, I think you put your finger on the real import, the value of this question. It's not what you can do. It's who you are. The most important thing that you and your husband can do um, to, to, to rightly represent the Lord in your home is to be 100% committed to him. Sold out, lock, stock, and barrel. If your children see that your Jesus is worth having, then they're going to want him when they get old enough to make their own decision. You know, Gene, when people, uh, when kids grow up in a home that's filled with, with strife and contention, uh, when moms and dads are yelling at each other, saying terrible things about one another, uh, when moms and dads freak out when trials come in their life, instead of running to Jesus, they, they, they take matters in their own hands. Then the kids, as they grow up, all they see is hypocrisy. And if you want your children to follow Jesus, and obviously that's your goal, then the one thing you've got to do is you've got to set the example yourself. And if you're doing that, you're doing everything that God's asked you to do. Yeah, you should be in church. And yeah, there should be family devotions. And yes, there should be times of family prayer. But far more important than any of that is that Jesus is the center of your home. And your kids grow up knowing that your Jesus is real. When they get in trouble, they'll do what mom and dad did. Well, mom and dad always run to Jesus. Let's pray. I think there's another thing, Gene, that you and your husband can do. And that's when you sin, own it. Don't try to gloss over it like it didn't happen. Sit your kids down and tell them, Daddy sinned, Mom sinned. And we wanted to tell you because we, we want you to know that when we sin, we have an advocate. The Lord Jesus who cleanses of our sin and fills us afresh with his spirit. That way they won't do guilt. What they'll do instead of guilt is repentance. And that's the most important thing you can do. There's nothing quite as difficult for a kid to process as a parent who drags their kids to church, a parent who says one thing but lives something different. So just be sure that your life is committed. One other thing, and I said this the first time when I did a um, father-daughter banquet in Austin many, many years ago. I told the dads in that audience the most important thing they can do for their daughter is to cherish your daughter's mother. To make sure that your daughter knows she's loved because she can see that your commitment to love your wife, her mother, is strong and steady. So don't think of it as what you've got to do. You just be who you are in Christ. Your house should be filled with the love of God's Spirit. Your house should be a place that your kids enjoy coming. You know, even before I was saved, and this is all Paula, but even before I was saved, um, all of our kids' friends hung out at our house. My kids knew there was something different about our home. And that's, I think, one of the important things for your kids. They need to know that this is a place where honesty rules. They need to know that this is a place where Jesus makes the rules and everybody, mom, dad, and kids, follow the rules. Never stop reminding them how much Jesus loves them. Never stop telling them how eager he is to forgive when they do mess up. And they'll fall in love with Jesus the way, Gene, it appears that you are. So I hope that answers your question. I think those are really, really important questions. 340-9585. Um, Reggie wants to know, uh, if pastors did not get paid, oh, this is a statement. Uh, if pastors did not get paid, maybe they would stop asking for money so much. 
thoughts, please. Um, Reggie, I don't know any other job where you would write in to a radio program and say, well, maybe if bus drivers didn't get paid or maybe if if uh, CEOs didn't get paid, maybe if the Spurs didn't get paid, tickets wouldn't be so much. Of course pastors should get paid. Paul says that they're due double honor and, and the honor there is is a reference to pay. It doesn't mean we're worth twice as much. It just means that we devote our time to studying the Bible and teaching the Word. We love our people. We get invested in their lives. Now, I agree with you completely, Reggie, that we pastors ask for money way, way, way too much. We do not do that here at Calvary Chapel. That's another thing God made very clear to me from the very beginning. Never let your needs be known and never ask for money. And so we don't do that. But pastors are like everybody else. On my staff, now I've got, I think, seven pastors. Is that right? Six or seven. Okay. Oh, well, let me let me pick this up on the other side of the break. I didn't know we were that close. We have 30 minutes left in the program. 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. We will be back in two minutes. back to the word to stand on for life we're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR now here's pastor ron arbaugh welcome back to the program 340-9585 let me finish with reggie's question reggie i was just doing the count my my producer and i uh, we have nine pastors not counting me at our church um, we have we're, we're pastor heavy only in the sense that we've got a, a principal who's a pastor and we've got a doctor. They run ministries and I want them to be pastors and they they are men that have been ordained. Um, but but for most of them, they have a bunch of kids. Why would you ask a pastor with children to work for free? I mean, I just think it's it's unfair. Um, I think your question or your statement is cynical. Um, if you are in a church where they ask for money too much, um, find another church. You know, just because some people mess it up for for others, uh, it doesn't mean that you can't find somebody who's going to be doing it right. Somebody whose heart is really for the Lord. I know a lot of pastors here in San Antonio. And um, pastors I know uh, are invested in their people. They love the Lord. They love their people. And um, they're, they're, they're godly men uh, who, who should get paid. I don't think anybody should get rich being a pastor. My pastors certainly aren't being rich. We're in a difficult time now financially. And so... Uh, money's really, really scarce right now, and they sacrifice like everybody else does. But the point is that for a lot of us, this is a job. I've got pastors who work second jobs. So, yeah, they should get paid. Hope that makes sense. Here is a question from Nacho from our email inbox. Pastor, my question is about Revelation chapter 12, verses 7 through 9. Let me read the the passage uh, first, Nacho, and then we'll get uh, to the question. It says in verse 7, "Then Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, that's Satan. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was not strong enough. And they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down. That ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan who leads the whole world astray, he was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. And Nacho's question is this. We know that Revelation 12 begins as a vision, symbolism. My question is about verses 7 through 9 referring to Satan's fall. Is this portion part of the vision or is it a step back in time to the fall because we know that that event really happened. Am I correct? Nacho, I think you're looking at the wrong, in the wrong direction. 
I think Revelation 12, verse 7 through 9, is, is something that happens future to the time that this war broke out in heaven. So, um, clearly, the great dragon hurled down. Satan still has access to the throne of God. He's not been uh, cast out of the throne of God. He's still, for reasons that I can't understand, nor are we required to understand, he still has access to the throne room of God. Um, but we know he is going to be cast down. And uh, this refers to a time when Satan will be um, locked up in a dungeon for the thousand-year millennial reign of Christ on earth. He will be impotent and, and powerless until God lets him loose for a short time at the end of the thousand years. And he's going to do that because the people who were born and lived during the millennium uh, of, uh, on earth uh, will not have had a, a choice to make. They will have, th- Their service to the Lord would be compelled. And God doesn't compel anybody. So those people will have a choice. Unfortunately, the Bible tells us that the numbers of the people that he deceived are going to be counted like the, the, the grains of sand on the seashore. So in other words, a huge, huge number. I think... This looks forward to a time where the victory of the devil will be complete. We also know, Nacho, that, that after the, the thousand years is over and the great white throne judgment happens, that Satan is going to be cast into the lake of fire where the Antichrist, the man we call the Antichrist and the false prophet, will already have been on their own for a thousand years in the lake of fire. That's when everybody is going to meet uh, the, their final judgment. So it is a vision. Remember, uh, John is seeing things. He's having a difficult time understanding. Uh, But this would be a time looking forward to his ultimate and complete fall uh, from, from access to heaven. Good question. Here is a question from Jeffrey. Jeffrey, you've been in a Reformed church. Did Jesus die for everyone or just for those who were chosen by God? Jeffrey, the most well-known verse in our New Testament is John 3.16. For God so loved the world, not the elect, for God so loved the world, the idea is he died for everybody. He died for everybody. That whosoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. So Jesus died for everyone, not just those who are chosen by God. His his death, in the theological terms, or, or his death was efficacious for all, but effective or efficient only for those who respond. So God didn't look down from heaven and say, okay, I choose you, I don't choose you, um, you heaven, you hell. He didn't do that. Now, of course, he knows, because he knows everything, who's going to choose heaven and who's going to choose hell. But... But make no mistake, Jesus died for the world and for everyone in it. I'll make it even more exciting for you, Jeffrey. If you were the only one that ever said yes, he still would have died for you based on the parable of the pearl of great price in Matthew chapter 13, verse 45 and forward. So he died for everyone. Don't let people change the meaning of words. And that's what Calvinists and Reformed theologians do. They, they twist and, and turn and, uh, and, and they're doing it because they've got a systematic theology that has to be met. Just do what it says. God is unwilling that any should perish, Peter writes. So he died for the sins of the world, not just for those who are chosen by God. Three four zero ninety five eighty five for live calls and questions, and nobody's on the phone right now, so we've got plenty of space. Here's a question from Alice. How can we know someone is really repentant when they've asked us to forgive them? Alice, boy, that's the hard question because we really can't tell for sure. Now, there are clues. Uh, first and foremost, I think when somebody accepts responsibility for what they've done. You know, when somebody comes to you, Alice, and says, well, I'm sorry if I offended you. Forgive me if I did. That's not an apology. That's not asking for forgiveness. Uh, When somebody 
owns their sin, when somebody accepts the responsibility for what they've done, and when they ask you to forgive you with no qualifications, no explanations, just, I'm so sorry, please forgive me for what I've done to you or what I've said about you, then you can know that's a pretty good indication that they are genuinely repentant. Um, the person who sins and demands to be forgiven because, well, even God forgives, so you should forgive me. That's not repentance. Uh, the person who has sinned, and, and I don't know your circumstance, Alice, I'm not trying, I don't know you, so I'm not trying to say this is what's behind it, but just as the Lord is bringing things to heart, um, the man who cheats on his wife and gets caught, and he's sorry because he got caught, but he wasn't going to tell unless he got caught. Well, that's a man who, to prove that he's really repented, is going to make sure that he's accountable for his time. He's going to make sure he understands that, that his wife is, is, is finding it difficult to trust him. And he's going to go out of a way to win that trust back. So those are the kind of ways you know that the repentance is genuine. But it begins with them first getting their heart right with God and then moving forward. One other thing, Alice. You can forgive somebody and still not trust them. We're not God. God knows the future. So trust has to be earned. And when lost, it has to be re-earned. Um, I had the question earlier about the, uh, from a mom about her, her 16-year-old daughter. And I talked about, is she honest with you? Is she accountable to you? Um, the same thing is true. Children, when they lose trust, have to regain it. And so those things are important. Real repentance is saying, I did it. I'm sorry. I have no excuse. And at least for me, Alice, that's the most effective way of guarding our hearts and making sure that the repentance is genuine. We want to be good forgivers. We want to be eager forgivers. And I think, Alice, the best way to do it is just to... I'm going to use a word Paula said she hates. Vulnerable. <laughs> Trust God to take care of you. Here is a question from Bethany. Why does God use... Oh, oh before Bethany, I'm sorry. I've just been told by my producer I've got a call waiting. So let's go to... David on line one. David, thanks for holding. You're on the air. Hey, Pastor Ron, how are you? I'm doing well, David. Um, I have a church question, and uh, okay. I don't have a bias on this question at all. It's just a question. Um, okay. I know in the Old Testament where where God kind of gave all the steps, if you will, for the tabernacle and how the high mm -hmm. priest was to go in and what he was to wear and so on. I know that was all in an order, if you will. But how okay. did we get to church service order. In other words, you know, if you go to a church, no matter what church you go to, well, I guess it does, but, uh, you know, usually some of them will start off with a scripture reading or a prayer, and then we do praise and worship, and then we do a tithe and offering, and then we do the message, and, you know, it kind of just follows a pattern, if you will, from church to church, denomination to denomination. There's a little bit of change here and there. But why do churches follow that particular format, if you will. I don't know that that's in the Bible, and if you can tell me where it's at, I'd like to know. Thank you. Yeah, thank, thank you, uh, David. I, I, I can't answer your question other than to say that churches and pastors and everybody else are, are, are sort of um, formed, what we do and how we do it is formed by our cultural surroundings. Um, you know, in the first century church, they had little small house churches because they didn't have big buildings and the church was just spreading and it would start small. And so house churches would have to spread all over the place. And I believe with all of my heart that they, they began then with prayer and with, uh, with, with scripture reading. Um, uh, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, Paul tells Timothy. Uh, and, and then I just think over the years, depending on on uh, which century you lived in and what part of the world that you lived in, 
um, then then we develop sort of a formula for for doing what we do. I think, David, you bring up a really, really good point, because one of the things that I tell pastors all the time is that we are God's representative. We represent him in our church. So what we need to do as pastors is ensure that we are doing what God has told us to do, not doing what other people do, not doing what works in other churches, but instead, Lord, how do you want to do this? Now, David, the model that, that, that we follow here at Calvary Chapel of San Antonio, and I, I'm only responsible for one church, but the model we follow comes from the book of Acts. Um, I believe that if you are studying your Bible, that, that, that the pattern that God gives us is a really important pattern, and he does it to show us this is my model for doing church. And if you start in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, and finish the chapter, he tells us what a church is going to look like. Now, within those guidelines, a church devoted to the apostles' teaching, we would say devoted to the Word of God, uh, a church that is, is a place of prayer, a church that is a, a place of worship, we, get, we have some freedom. We, we're, we're not under the law. Grace provides us a little bit of freedom in order to do things uh, different ways, but we can't miss those things. And I'm sad to say to you that I think far too many of us uh, as pastors, we do what works or we do what we've been taught by somebody else. And I, I honestly believe, David, that far too few of us really sit down and say, okay, Lord, here are the basics. Acts chapter 2 gives us the basics. This is how church is to be done. But what do you want it to look like? What do you want it to feel like? Let me give you one example. Our church. We have um, um, a crazy meet and greet time here. Um, you know, one of the things, if you go to another church, um, say, turn to somebody that you don't know and say hello, and people turn to somebody right behind them or next to them and, and introduce themselves. And that's whole meet and greet. Um, we've always believed that God wants us to go out of our way to make people feel welcome. We want them to feel loved. So our meet and greet is a full five minutes of time. Sometimes it goes a little longer than that, unfortunately. And and we get out of our chairs and out of our rows and we run around and we hug people and Welcome people. I tell our people here to, to find somebody you don't know, um, to, to look for somebody you don't know and welcome them. Uh, invite somebody who's sitting alone to come and sit with you where you are. And, and, you know, David, I wouldn't trade that for the world. Now, that's not in the Bible. But I believe that in the Acts chapter 2 church, fellowship was really important. The people couldn't wait to go to church because it was a place where there was fellowship. That Greek word koinonia is oneness. And and um, I want to be sure that people experience that here at Calvary Chapel. I personally think that we've done a really, really good job of that, David. On the other hand, um, it's not wrong for somebody to do it differently. Uh, the other thing that we do not do here is pass a plate. So we don't have an offertory. We don't have um, um, uh, an impassioned plea for money. Uh, we devote that time to the things that Acts chapter 2 says we ought to devote our time to. So, again, we've got freedom individually within the guidelines God has given us, but I think far too often we just throw away that Acts chapter 2 model, and I personally believe, David, that that's what God says church in the New Testament is supposed to be like. That's what we do. We know that Paul says that, that, that the job of pastors is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. You do that in the Word. Uh, worship. Uh, in, in the West, worship has always been associated with music. Um, you go back to the, the um, Wesleys and the, and the Spurgeons and, and uh, those that sort of built the foundation for the way modern church and modern evangelistic outreach is done. Uh, and what you end up uh, seeing is, is people following that model. Um, so uh, that's, that's the best answer I can give you, David, but it's... it's uh, it's just that uh, we all have personalities and styles. Um, my church looks far different than a Lutheran church would look. Uh, I don't want, uh, this can be hard to explain. I want church to be the same every week, but I don't want it to be the same every week. I want people to come in and be comfortable, know exactly what's going to happen. But because we've got a different word, the Spirit is doing a different work. 
Uh, I want them to, to be looking forward to, to what God is going to say to them. And again, I think that model is given to us in Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 42. Uh, if you are interested, David, you can go to calvaryessay.com and I do an entire study on just those first those few verses, uh, beginning in Acts chapter 2, verse 42. Um, uh, that's the model I think God has given us to do church. So hope that answers your question. Let me get back to the question I started a moment ago. It's from Bethany. Why does God use humans instead of using angels or creating someone who would only obey him? Well, Bethany, the why does God questions usually have no answer. His ways are not our ways. They're so far above our ways. Here's what I can tell you. God uses humans because in some way we can't understand that's how God gets the greater glory. God could use angels and he could make everybody. Remember when angels showed up, the Old Testament saints in particular fell on their face as though dead. So terrifying and holy are these angels. You know, if an angel popped up in my midweek service tonight, uh, I think everybody would pay attention. But instead, God says, no, 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 listen to this dumb guy over here. And he's using me. So why does he do it? Well, God uses the foolish things of the world because he gets more glory. It's almost like people can look at me or look at you, Bethany, and say, God uses them. Well, if God can use them, surely God can use me. Um, God additionally would never create a robot. I mean, you say, well, why doesn't he use angels or create someone who would only obey him? Uh, God would never create a robot. It's, it's not love if your love is compelled rather than freely given. I think the single biggest source of Jesus' heartbreak is the fact that he loves everyone so much and so many reject him. Now, if I was God and could do all things, I'd probably intervene and say, okay, I'm going to make you love me. But, but that wouldn't be love. So God uses humans because he gets greater glory. Thank you very, very much. Hope that helps, Bethany. Robert wants to know, can you explain how the gift of healing works in 1 Corinthians chapter 12? I would like to receive the gift to heal others. Robert, you misunderstand uh, what the gift of healing is all about. Now, if you look closely in 1 Corinthians 12, it's not healing, it's healings. The gift, the spiritual gift of healings is not a gift given to someone to go heal other people. The gift of healings happen when people get healed in the body. Now, here's what we've done in a Western culture, and we've done it since um, Catherine Coleman and and beyond, uh, because we, we realize that people will pay false hope. Um, people pay a lot for it. Um, we, we, we misrepresent that God has given somebody a gift of healing, and then we got to go to the anointed one and let him touch us, and then we can be healed. That's not at all the gifts, plural, of healing in the New Testament. So for somebody to say, God, I have the gift of healing. For these, again, these crusaders, these so-called evangelists that go around and take your money and take offering after offering after offering and then kind of whip you up into an altered state of consciousness with the same repetitive music over and over and over and then they start doing crazy things. Um, that is not the gift of healing at all. Robert, we only have a few minutes left in the program. Let me say this. I have begged God for the gift of healing. I, uh, I spend a lot of time in hospitals, of course. It's what pastors do, um, one of the least favorite things that we do, um, and, and every time I'm there to go see somebody who's sick or somebody who's in the hospital for whatever reason, um, we always go visit other people, and I'm praying, you know, Lord, I'd love the gift of healing just to be able to heal. I, I don't want anybody to know it's me. I don't want any attention. Let me just walk down these halls and and, and, and heal all these people went to Children's Hospital, um, Robert, and and I, I beg God just 
just let's do miracles here today. You do them. I'll just be the vessel. I'll walk by a room or I'll go in a room and I'll pray and then I'll just disappear and you do the healing. But that's really a misunderstanding of the gift of healing. When we have services, when the Lord is speaking to me about his spirit to heal here, his His power to heal, um, I let people know that because I want them to have the faith to ask God to heal them. So I'm like you, I'd like to give to heal others, but that's not what the gifts of healing, the gifts, plural, of healing, that's not what they're about. So stop watching maybe Christian television. Stop believing people who say that they've been anointed to heal. Because by and large, that's all nonsense. If God gives a gift of healing to someone, then that gift, Robert, only God gets the glory. Nobody in a fancy suit. Nobody taking credit for it. God gets all the glory. And we've had a lot of those times when people get healed. Um, still people, some don't get healed. It has nothing to do with their faith. What is God going to do? He's going to give a gift or he's not going to give a gift. It's really that, that straightforward. So, Robert, I hope that makes sense to you. You can hear the music. That half hour went really, really fast. Uh, you've been listening to The Word to Stand On for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. Tonight, Isaiah chapter 59 uh, at 7 o'clock. Um, you can go to calvarysa.com and watch it on the live stream. Be safe, be warm, and Paula will be live in studio to warm things up tomorrow on the Date Day Show. God bless you. See you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.